You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The reading is from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Maham, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of God. be to God. Good morning. Uh, if you're visiting, uh, my name is Darren Carlson, and honestly, I saw so many new faces this morning. I hope you haven't been here a year, because uh, I don't, I've never seen you before. So uh, my name's Darren. I am a member. I sit right over here. Uh, if you're visiting, come say hi afterwards. Uh, just a reminder, two weeks ago, uh, it's not my typical pattern to shame people into doing things that I want them to do. But two weeks ago, I shamed the church into getting tickets to Jesus in Athens. Why am I doing that, you might add, uh, you might ask. Uh, it's not my typical way of doing things to shame people into to come to something that I created, but uh, I am shaming you. Now there are about 100 of you that have gotten tickets, so good job, but that's uh, about 250 short of the people in this room. And so two weeks from now, Jesus in Athens is going to premiere here at 5 and 7. There's about 70 tickets left for the 5 p.m. showing and about 200 for the 7 p.m. showing. It's, it's appropriate for children because they're going to miss two or three sentences that uh, deal with trafficking uh, in the passing. But it's a great opportunity to show people what God is doing in the world, among, especially amongst Muslim refugees, 
uh, as, they, as Jesus is appearing to them in dreams and visions and as Christians are showing hospitality to these people. So that's the last time you're going to hear it from me up here. It's two weeks from today, and a lot of people are helping, setting up a huge screen, trying to get painters' canvases to cover up the windows and make it dark. And uh, it'd be, it's great if you would come. And if you don't, uh, we'll know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's pray. <coughs> Father, what an interesting scene in Acts 13. And we can uh, laugh about fun things that are happening in our church. And uh, we can also uh, be serious about your word and lighthearted about life. And what a fascinating scene, Acts 13. So we ask that you would open our eyes to it now, in Jesus' name, amen. In 1963, when a, f a well-known uh, guy who became the leader of a charismatic movement came to Christ, he described himself as a beer-guzzling, drug-abusing pop singer at 29. I'm guessing not many of you have described yourself that way. But he did what no one does when they come to Christ. They, he got involved in a Quaker Bible study. And as he was meeting with the Quakers and reading the Bible, and as he says, I was chain smoking my way through Bible study every week, reading the Bible with them, he got to the point where he was reading Acts and the Gospels, and he finally asked them, when do we get to do the stuff? And they were a little shocked. What do you mean by the stuff? He said, I don't know, like the casting out of demons, the raising people from the dead, the, the healing of people. You know the stuff Jesus did in the apostles? And like many good evangelicals, they said, we don't do that stuff. We just study the Bible. Today is one of those passages where you see the stuff. Somewhat controversial. We see the little bit about the leaders of the early church in Antioch. We get to learn a little bit about how they go about things. This is a huge turn in the history of the early church. We see the mission of sending two of them out. So we're talking about the stuff today, and we'll do it, and I'll make three points as a good preacher does. We'll look at the multicultural home church, the sending of missionaries, the mission, sending of missionaries, and then this confrontation attacking the devil. So a multicultural church sending a missionaries attacking the devil. All the teenagers are probably like, cool, attacking the devil. Let's do that one last. So you have to listen. The church of Antioch. Okay, the multicultural church. Multicultural church. Let's do a little history lesson. The book of Acts is history after all. About 31, 32 AD, there's persecution that breaks out. And some Greek-speaking Jews come to Antioch because of the persecution and start the church in Antioch. I'll just read from Acts 11, 19 and 20. Now those that were scattered because of the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, who killed Stephen? Saul, right? Okay, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among the Jews. Some of them, however... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. So Acts 11, 20, 19 and 20, 
persecution broke out in Jerusalem, people, boom, scattered. They weren't sent out. There, it was no, like, plan. It was persecution hit, boom, out they go. And some of them go to Antioch, start preaching to the Jews. But then also people from Cyprus, how did they hear the gospel? We don't know. They go to Antioch too, and they start preaching to the Greeks, which is a problem because so far it's only been the Jews for the most part who have received the message of the gospel. But now in Antioch, the Gentiles are receiving the message of the gospel. That's the founding of the church of Antioch. Fourteen years have passed when we get to our scene. Fourteen years. Notice something about Acts 11.20, though, that I think is great. They don't list any names. Some men from Cyprus. How, much, how many stories in church history, for real, are we going to find out one day, be, and we have no idea who these people are, right? Now, when some of you think about heaven, you probably think healing, you think be, uh, you think worshiping God, you think I'm going to see Jesus, he's going to hug me, there's going to be no more tears, he's wiping the tears off my eyes. You think about all those things. One thing I think about is the community, the stories that we're going to be able to sit around and tell. You know the song, is saints of old still line the way, how's it go? Retelling stories of his grace. You know this song, right? We're going to be doing that. That's a reference to Hebrews of everyone cheering us on, heroes of the faith, and we're telling stories that we know. We know some stories. But at the turning point of Acts, the first people who purposely go to the Gentiles, we have no idea who they are. How many stories? Our view of God is often limited by what we are told is happening in the world, right? I was doing research once for missions, and I went to this ministry for Iranians. And this is what the missionary said to me. The Iranians are so easy to lead to Christ. The Afghans are impossible. Well, a week later, I was at an Afghan ministry. Guess what they said? The Afghans are coming to Christ all the time. The Iranians are so challenging. What's going on? Their view of God and what he is doing in the world is limited to what they can see and what they have heard, their success, tunnel vision. We have no idea what God is doing in the world. We often have no idea who it is that's doing it. Luke doesn't even tell us. At one of the most important, move, most important moments in the book of Acts, that's the church of Antioch. 14 years, 31 to 32 is when the church of Antioch comes into being because of the persecution. It's now Acts 13, 14 years later. The church has grown to the point that the church in Jerusalem has sent Barnabas. We know that in 11, 21 to 24. So really, 14 years pass in like, you know, one verse. Why does Luke do that? You know, some of you who have been married, let's say 40, 50 years, you're the ones who do this. You summarize your marriage by decades in sentences. Back when the kids were in the house, it was like this, two or three sentences. You know, people who are, and then you hear people who are married for like two years and are like, well, the first six months, and it's like a story. And then the second six months, and some long story. But you who have been married longer, 
your, your, your explanation of things gets shorter for longer periods of time, and that's what Luke is doing. Quick summaries. Barnabas is sent up to the church in Antioch because people in Jerusalem have heard that the Gentiles are coming to faith. Barnabas then goes to Tarsus and recruits this guy, Saul, and they've been there for a year. Veteran missionaries working in Antioch. And then we get this list of leaders. Look down at the text. Barnabas, the Levite from Cyprus. Simeon, a black African. Lucius of Cyrene, a Roman. Manaean, who was brought up in Her- with Herod the Tetrarch. Interesting. And Saul, the Pharisee. Now, I'm tempted, like when you get to the genealogies in the Old Testament and even the New Testament, to just kind of skip over the names. You know what I'm talking about? This is confession time. This isn't like something you should be proud of. Barnabas, a Jew from Cyprus who rose to prominence, was all the way back at the beginning of Acts, selling land, the son of encouragement. He's been around for a long time. People know Barnabas. From Cyprus, in Jerusalem, now in Antioch. Simeon, a black African. Some think this is the Simeon that carried the cross of Christ in Luke. Think about that. Lucius, a Roman from Libya. That's North Africa on the coast. And Menaean. And Menaean gets some little extra, you know, parentheses about him. These other guys don't get a long sentence. This guy's got a little interesting side story. He was brought up in the house of Herod the Tetrarch. The ESV says long companion. Could have been he was the half-brother. So Herod the Great dies. He splits his land among four sons. They become Tetrarchs, four, four areas. One of those guys is Herod Antipas. Who's Herod Antipas? He's the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. He's the guy who was involved in the conspiracy to kill Jesus Christ. He's the guy Menaean grew up with. And he's the leader of the church at Antioch. Same house. Is that crazy? I mean, imagine the stories these guys are telling. Well, I carried the cross of Christ. Well, I grew up with Herod Antipas. And then Saul rolls in. Well, Jesus appeared to me. (laughs) And Barnabas has been there from the beginning. Feel like the Roman Lucius just got like the short, short stick of all of it. I mean, we don't know anything about him. You know, you remember Moses grew up in the same household with Pharaoh, who would end up trying to kill him. Same upbringing. Parents are thinking about this now, like <laughs> kids. You know, what is it about Manan that was so special and? Herod the Tetrarch, who Herod Antipas, who went to kill John the Baptist, Jesus, same upbringing, same pagan lifestyle, but Menaean was saved, and Herod Antipas was not. Apparently, this group makes up prophets and teachers. The way the Greek works, Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius are probably the prophets, and Menaean and Saul are the teachers. You may ask me, how, how are they different? And what I'll say is, I'm not the senior pastor. Ask him. That's a, it's a challenging thing to fit that in. 
And I don't want us to get distracted by this long discussion about the difference between a prophet and a teacher. So just leave it to the side. There are prophets in the early church speaking, and there are teachers explaining God's word. Okay, the mission. Verse 2, verse 3. They're worshiping and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I've called them. After they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them out. Now, I tend to read Scripture quickly, especially if I'm reading it on a screen, and I skip over words. Here's one of the phrases that kind of you might skip over if you're not thinking, you know, slowly. The Holy Spirit said, how? Have you ever had people tell you, like, God told me blankety-blank, and you're just like, How? The Holy Spirit said, like, it sat down with you at dinner and was like, told you to do this? Is that what happened? Best guess for me is that the prophet spoke. There was some plan in the works. And, they, and the prophet said, Barnabas and Saul are the two people who are going to do this work. Notice the church is fasting. I take it to mean the whole church, not just the five leaders who are mentioned. I Take it to mean that because the entire church at the end of Acts 14 gets a report back. So the entire church is involved in trying to make a plan of some kind, discern the prophet's words, and then to do something about it. And they're taking it seriously because they're fasting. Neither Barnabas and Saul had been in Antioch for a long time. It had just been a year. This church is 14 years old. Saul and Barnabas has, have just been there for a short period of time. They've been ministering there now, and now Antioch is sending them out. They place their hands on them. Again, I don't think this is just the leaders. This is the church. It's a way of commissioning or blessing them. You know, we're, we're a bigger church, so when you see someone get their hands laid on, the pastor kind of awkwardly says, now everyone stretch out their hands, and like most of the people do something like this because they're just... How far, you know, just lay out your hands. And then sometimes people will lay hands on someone up here as a way to commission, to bless, to say you are our people. We love you. We support you. Commissioning here is identification. It's saying these are ours. They belong to us. We are delegating responsibility to them to go. And we are sending them with our blessing and support. We love you. We're doing this on purpose. You're not just going on your own. Important point. They don't just say one day, hey, we're going to go. Church, what do you think? The church responds with fasting and praying. Fasting and praying. I take it that there's plans that have been made because the Holy Spirit just says to them, set apart for me, for these two, for the work. What, what? The work? What's that a summary of? Most likely, I think, someone had a plan, a plan to go out, and they brought it before the leaders and the church, and there was some sort of authentication, pro authentic, authentic, you know what I'm saying, Cation process that involved praying, fasting, worshiping, Someone from the outside, not just them saying, 
this is what they should do. The church then testing the words of the prophet to see if it's true or not. And then commissioning and sending them out. This is similar to what the church does in 3 John. I'm just going to read you verse 6 of 3 John. You'll just trust me. Missionaries have come into the church. This is decades later now. Send them on their way in a manner that honors God. Interesting. If you are an underlying Bible, underlining Bible person, that's the phrase to underline. In a way that honors God. You know, there is a big difference between a church has missionaries and a church sends missionaries. The church that, you know, we want to be involved in missions, so we better find someone so we can support them. And the church blessing, hands-on, aware of what's going on, not just the leaders, not just someone coming to the leader and say, I have a plan, and the leader's going, hmm, we've got a little bit of money here. Yeah, we'll go. What are you doing? Ah, it doesn't really matter. You're going to be going to the nations. We, that's a good idea. You don't want to do that. That's how mission, most missions works, by the way. We don't want to do that. Authentication, man, that word, authentication doesn't <laughs> take place. We know from the pastoral epistles, it would, there would have been character testing. There would have been theological testing. And you know what's crazy? They send the leaders. I think most churches, they kind of have this attitude of, we'll kind of send whoever wants to go because it's a good idea to go. So if someone says, especially younger, I want to go to the nations, they go, that's a great idea, let's send you. But this church... Is, not will, is willing to send their top two. Do you know a church where the main teacher gets sent out for the sake of mission? No, no, no. The church holds on to that guy. No, we need him here for us. You can have, you know, the, the, the bullpen. You can't have the starting pitcher. Well, they're sending out the ace to go. Veterans, to send them out in a manner worthy of God, recognizes the supreme importance of proclaiming the gospel and word in, and acting it out in deed among the nations and supporting them financially, practically, emotionally, spiritually. Now, it's different now than it was then. They loaded them up with funds and they sent them out, and that was it. Report back to us when you come back. We're not going to hear anything. That's how it goes. Today, that's not how it goes. So here's the picture. And this, I just saw this yesterday, and I thought it was crazy. So kids, if you're not listening, listen now. Li yeah, everyone, they all looked up. Listen, this is crazy. Believers, gospel starts in Jerusalem. It goes to Antioch due to persecution from who? Saul, okay, Antioch church grows, Gentiles come to faith, Saul gets recruited to that church to do teaching, and then that church, founded because of the persecution of Saul, is now laying hands on him to be their missionary. It hasn't been that long. Some of the founding members would have been there. I mean, the gospel does crazy stuff. 
What kind of message would allow you to put your hands on me if I had killed your friend and you had moved here because of it? That's what happened. That church doesn't exist because of a pre-planned missionary work. That church exists because Saul killed Stephen. And now they're laying hands on him to be the missionary after letting him be the teacher for a year. The gospel does crazy stuff, people. It allows people to lay down the grudge that Saul made them move. Some of you don't want to move, right? Imagine the grudge you would feel. <laughs> they had to move because of this guy. The anger that you killed my buddy Stephen. The frustration of what you did 14 years ago, it's all gone. And the only thing we're reading about is he taught there for a year, they put their hands on him, and they sent him out. Reminds me of being in this Afghan church the last Sunday I, we were living in Greece. In front was an Afghan, pa the Afghan pastor who a couple years earlier was a defender of the Quran, would go to Bible studies to try to stop people from converting. And he was a religious police officer back in his home country. And he was translating for a Korean missionary who had been held by the Taliban a few years e earlier for 40 plus days and whose team had, had people killed while they were in capture. So here's the Afghan, years later, translated for the Korean. The Korean was preaching in English, his second language, and then the third language of the Afghan pastor was English, and then he was translating it into Dari for the people. What other message in the world does that? Do you think the gospel can't address your hurt, your pain, your relational frustration? If it can do that, it can handle your stuff. Trust me. The confrontation, okay. The stuff, verse 4 through 12. You know, these travel narratives are amazing. We only get like a little summary. He went down to Seleucia. Then he sailed to Cyprus. He arrived in Salamis. They proclaimed the word of God. John's with them. They travel the whole island when they get to Paphos. Okay, summary. Let's just wrap our minds around what that means. 16 miles of walking to the coast, 130 miles in a first century sailboat. Cyprus has two large mountain ranges. They would have walked 100 miles to get to Paphos. You know, my kids walk half a mile and their legs are going to fall off. Okay, these guys do... Six, it's true, Dakota. Stop making that face at me. <laughs> 16 miles. He's like looking at me funny. 16 miles to get to the coast. 130 miles on a boat. Not a good one. 100 miles walking. It's all, I mean, this is Acts. Acts is highlight level Christianity. You don't get like, it was cold. It was a hard day. We didn't get along. Barnabas and Saul fought that day. Nothing. 
All we get is Mark, John Mark is with him. This is Barnabas' cousin who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Just interesting historical point. John Mark, who writes the Gospel, are with Paul and Barnabas. Later, Luke joins Paul. So two Gospel writers knew the Apostle. He knew Jesus Christ. He would have heard some stories. Matter of fact, Luke may have even gotten some of the stuff from Paul who heard it from Mark. Why Cyprus? We don't know. This is the place where the people first came from, to, came from in Antioch. It could be because Barnabas is my guess. Barnabas is from there. He probably knew people. So because he knew people, he said, let's go to Cyprus first. I know where we can stay. And so there's, there's no real talk about like what they did along the journey, but certainly it was multiple nights if they're walking, let's just say they walk 15 miles a day. Well, it's eight or nine days across the island. They would have had to sleep somewhere. And what are they doing? They're preaching. Now, before I get to the text, I just want to, I'm so glad I get to do this. I love demolishing Christian myths, things that Christians believe that just are not true. And one popular one is this. Saul, the persecutor, got renamed Paul the Apostle. Have any of you heard this before? Saul changed his name to Paul when he became a Christian. Some of you have heard this, right? Please tell me. Shake your head. Thank you. Good grief. I was like, oh, man, it's not a myth. No one believes. This is a popular, it's a nice preaching point. It even sounds good, right? It preaches really well. It's just wrong. Let me show you why it's wrong. Point one, Saul is called Saul 11 times after his conversion. Two, in our text, the Holy Spirit calls him Saul. Three, it is common for people to have two names. What's Barnabas' other name? Joseph. What's Simeon's other name? Niger. Two names. Most likely, Saul is his Jewish name, and Paul is his Greek name, and he uses it for the first time when? When he gets in front of a Greek Roman governor. And now as he goes out to the Gentiles, his name that is used by Luke is Paul. So it's not that God kind of changed his name. I mean, you see this now in church history. People get baptized, they're given a Christian name. Part of it is from Saul Paul. It's all wrong. Now you know. Back to the text. When they get to Paphos, they meet Sergius Paulus. We know him to be the governor of the island. He's a good one. Luke calls him an intelligent man. And then this crazy kind of phrase. He wants to hear the word of God. Why? Paul and Barnabas, I'm going to use Paul now. Paul and Barnabas are nobodies. Why? Do you think that when Paul and Barnabas were back in Antioch, they go, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to Cyprus, and we're definitely going to get a hearing with the leader of the entire island, and the gospel will go forth. That's what we'll do. No. And yet this guy called for them. He, they didn't even go to him. He wanted to know what they were saying. 
pro- I'm going to guess he's probably checking to make sure they're not insurrectionists. They're not saying that Jesus is greater than Caesar. Whatever the case, they're going to use it. And they go. And immediately when they go, what happens? Opposition. And I, I swear, I, I, I do swear, every time I share the gospel with someone, this happens almost every time. I was just doing it recently. Trying, I was sharing the gospel with someone. They start asking me questions. And then like four kids come up. I'm not saying they're the devil, but four kids come up and just take the conversation to peanut butter and jelly. You know? That's my son. <clears throat> that was my daughter. <laughs> okay. Or I begin to share the gospel with someone and a co-worker. I mean, I work in a Christian ministry, so this wouldn't happen. But I've had this where their co-worker has started coming, and they take the conversation and just move it. And I'm not forcing it down their throat. They're interested. They're asking me. I had a friend, he would, lead, he would lead people to Christ often, and he would always tell them, first thing, okay, you've become a Christian. Something bad's going to happen this week. Just be ready. And it's gonna, you're gonna, someone's going to try to say you're crazy. They're going to try to move you away from the faith. Your family's going to attack you if they're not believers. You might lose your job. He started listing off all these things. And without fail, every time something happened. We're just going to see if this is legit belief or not. Or if you're just believing this for some sort of social standing. And as, when that happens, people who didn't really believe, they fall away. The opposition here is an occult leader. I mean, look, Barnabas and Saul are not, Paul, are not preaching some neutral message. Like, you get your land, Satan, and we'll take ours. You stay over there and we'll stay over here. This is taking territory from Satan with the gospel. There's going to be a reaction, and the reaction in Acts in many places is, an occult leader. Samaria, Acts 8, occult leader. Cyprus, occult leader. Philippi, Acts 16, occult leader. Ephesus, Acts 19, occult leader. Every time new region gets plowed and someone from the occult opposes them. We're not even talking about the Jewish leaders. We're not talking about the Gentile pagans or the occult. The occult. You know, there's no need to fear this stuff, but if I was going to guess, I would say that very few of you fear this. It's that you just dismiss it as kind of below you. You know, like this is, that's not what uh, educated people think. This is not really a sophisticated belief, the demonic. And so you ignore it. You ignore it. I knew a, fr- a guy who was a mich- missionary in New Orleans, and he was looking around, and he was looking at all the people selling, uh, selling uh, to, a, to let people pay them to tell their fortune and their future. And he said, that's interesting. So he set up his own table, and his sign read, have Bible, we'll tell you your future for free. Confrontation with the demonic is normal. And it's what led that charismatic leader to say, when do we get to start doing the stuff? The stuff. 
Because for most American Christians, it is not normal. And of course today, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that you have, you know somebody that sees the, de- the, de- the devil behind every corner. The devil does this, the devil makes me do this. This kind of hyper-spirituality, this abuse of the term. But that doesn't mean that you're allowed to say, well, none of it's real. None of it's real. I would suggest that the reason why you never have a confrontation with a demon is because you're never taking ground away from Satan in your life. You're never pushing the gospel out. You're never taking territory, so he never fights back. You know, I always hear these people say, oh, it's, this is normal in Africa. And yes, I mean, I've had friends, people levitate off the ground, fly across the room, cast out the demon. Okay, normal stuff. But that's nothing happened here. Satan doesn't work that way. Yes, he does. Most evangelical Christians in the U.S. just aren't comfortable with it. And maybe part of the reason is, is because you're not actually doing anything for the kingdom at all except staying in it. Okay, Paul's response to the sorcerer. You know, this is a real fight. This is not some neutral thing. And Paul does not take out a page out of passive-aggressive Minnesota Nice playbook evangelism. You child of the devil, enemy of what is right, you full of deceit and trickery, You pervert the right ways of the Lord. And in case you think he's just crazy, the text says, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul did this under the control of the Holy Spirit. Is this loving? You know, when we do evangelism training in churches, and I'm guessing if you think about evangelism, the word that comes to mind for you is how do I carefully share the gospel with someone? And the word is always what? Careful. Careful. I'm guessing in this church in particular, I don't have to convince you that God is a God of love and God of wrath. Maybe in some evangelical churches you have to. I don't need to tell you about sin. This church talks about sin. This church talks about the condemnation we have without Christ. We talk about hell and the realities of it. The question is, when do you bring it up? When do you talk about it? And the word we use to not talk about it is, I want to be careful. Paul wasn't too careful. And I think you should make room in your heart for speaking to certain people this way. This guy is standing in the way of someone coming to Christ. That's what the text says. The sorcerer opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. And so he rebukes him. These are the kind of rebukes that are reserved for people who are often insiders. This guy is a Jew and a sorcerer. Paul doesn't speak, some of you are relieved to know this, Paul doesn't speak like this to everybody. He doesn't speak like this in Acts 17. 
it's not our only tactic. You know, I, I know this pastor, his name is Doug Wilson. He's in Idaho. One th- if you don't know who Doug Wilson is, the summary of Doug is you never have to wonder what he thinks. He always tells you. And his pen is pretty sharp. And he has some strong words for just about everybody. But a few years ago, he did a documentary with Christopher Hitchens, the well-known atheist. And they traveled from point to point, and they would debate, and Christopher Hitchens was trying to push people towards atheism, and Doug would try to undermine his arguments. They go campus to campus, and in the documentary, Doug is friends with him, shares a gospel with him, has meals with him, invites him into his house, all these things. But Doug, what, what about the sorcerer? It's not our only tactic. There's reasoning, there's preaching, there's come into my home. But in some situations, when you see someone coming to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit prompts you, you can turn to the other person and say, you child of the devil. That's the stuff. Full of deceit. Now, Paul now does something that I don't think any of you can do. He blinds him. I mean, what a cool little, you know, be blind. The hand of the Lord. What a scary thing. Great for the believer, but for the unbeliever, the hand of the Lord is on you. Blindness. Now, in the Gospels, we see something like this. You've got the blind men, and you've got the disciples, and the disciples can't see who Jesus is, and the blind men say out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. They see him for who he is. The disciples don't. This is the same thing. He's blind physically, and he's blind internally. He can't see the gospel for in all of its beauty, and Paul blinds him, even though he's already blind. Now, what's the difference between this guy and Paul? Paul Acts, Acts 8, he, Paul gets blinded. Jesus appears. Jesus doesn't do this. Someone could have gone up to Saul and said these exact words to Saul in chapter 8. But he saves Saul and not the sorcerer. Saul's not seeking Jesus. This sorcerer is not seeking Jesus. Manan's not seeking Jesus. Herod Antipas isn't seeking Jesus. And yet some of these guys are saved and some are not. Some are not. The result... He believes. Would it you? You see something like that? The answer is no. That's not why he converts. He doesn't convert because of the miracle. He converts because of the teachings about the Lord Jesus. I knew a Muslim woman, four dreams of Jesus, never came to faith in Christ. You know, you hear all these stories of Muslims coming to faith through dreams and visions. Four, nothing. I know two, two men very close to me. They saw their mom who had been in bed for a year, healed. The Mayo Clinic had sent the death certificate when two women came, put their hands on their mom, and said, get up and walk. The one son is a pastor. The other son has no recollection of it. Miracles don't save. And we all think if we would just see something like that, oh, we would believe. No, you wouldn't. Don't believe that lie. 
Some people in Acts believe, and what you read about is repentance. Some of it you read about filling of the Spirit. Some of it you read about is baptism. None of those things here. The only thing Luke uses to describe Sergius Paulus's conversion is he was amazed by the teachings of the Lord. Think about that. That is the summary of his entire conversion, or the ESV, astonished. And so I close with that. We have seen the amazing makeup of the church of Antioch. What stories they could tell. Now you know. Crazy that they would be the leaders. Sending out the guy who essentially planted their church through persecution, Saul. The first time they go out is a confrontation with Satan. And the response of the person who converts is amazement. Two weeks ago at the Boston Symphony, I don't know if you've read this, they played a song by uh, Mozart's funeral music. No, Masonic funeral music by Mozart. And you know, if you've been to a concert, everyone does this at the end, really polite clap. And uh, that's not what happened. The song ended, and then it was on radio. All you hear is a kid's voice going, wow. That was it. Wow. And then... Thunderous applause. A child's voice, simple expression of amazement. And so the fair question at the end, I I just think this is very fair. If you are a Christian, when is the last time you would describe your reactions to the teachings about the Lord Jesus as, wow, amazement, astonishment, I know someone who lives in Glacier Park. They walk out on their porch now and they're just like, whatever. People visit their house and they go, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my whole life. You just get used to things being beautiful. When's the last time you, you said it? Kids, look up at me. You guys get amazed at the dumbest stuff. Cheerios. iPhones. Have you ever heard the teaching about Jesus and the reaction has been wow that's it wow and if you're on the fence of the Christian faith I'll just tell you a sign that you are being drawn by God is that when you read this book and hear preaching that is legit the response is wow wow let's be Sergius Paulus today when we hear God's word just what, what people would know us for is, that was amazing. Not the preacher, God's word. God's word. Let's pray together.